Open your Bible, please, once again to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It's on page 1165 in the Pew Bible. I promise that this is the last week, at least for now, that we will be looking at this passage from Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 11. You might recall, if you've been here, we're using this passage as a gospel primer, looking at three aspects of the basic gospel message. Who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and this week, what it means for us. Or in short, his identity, his mission, his calling. So this week we're focusing not on his identity, that he's fully God, fully man, not why he came uh, to give us an example, to make atonement, reconcile us to God, to win a great victory, but what it means for us. How should we respond? How does this change our lives? Listen as I read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, God, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. What I want to look at this week is uh, uh, three things. Uh, so my outline's three points. God highly exalted Jesus, confess now or later, and citizens live like their Lord. We've been asking what this passage means for us, or that's what we're asking this week. What does this passage mean for us? But you might notice it's not really about us at all. Of course, the story of Christ is the turning point in history, and so it profoundly affects us. It's the most relevant thing in the world. But in this statement of the gospel here, Paul really is just talking about what Jesus does and what God does. It's the relationship between the Son and the Father. And we're sort of almost an afterthought. This short story of Jesus assumes a lot of background. It assumes that we know things about uh, the bigger story, that God created all things very good, that the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Those aren't two different things, but they're two sides of the same Reality, to glorify God is to enjoy Him. To enjoy God is to glorify Him. It assumes we know, though, that we are twisted. And so instead of glorifying God and enjoying Him, what we're made for, we seek our own interest, Paul says. We pursue empty glory. Instead of being other-centered like God and so reflecting His glory, we've become self-centered. Paul assumes we know all of that. Here he focuses on two things. In verses 6 through 11, there's two actors, two subjects. First, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus is the actor. He's the one doing all the actions. And then in 9 through 11, that we're going to focus on this morning, it switches subjects to God the Father. Jesus is now acted on rather than acting. What does the Son do? As we've seen in the previous weeks, we've looked at this passage. The Son of God enters into creation to straighten it out. God created the world good, and he loves the world, but it's all twisted out of shape. And so the Son, for love of the Father, enters the world to fix it, 
to restore God's good creation, to bring us back to the true purpose of creation. How to do that? By emptying himself, by taking the form of a servant, by living a life of humble obedience, by dying of vicarious death. Paul says at the very last line of this passage, all to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're made for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's what Christ does. He glorifies God. Brings us back to the true purpose of creation. Uh, the second century Bishop of Lyons, uh, Irenaeus, said the glory of God is a man fully alive. And when we look at Jesus' life, this is what we see as a man fully alive to the glory of God. In the Gospels, I think that's one of the features that stands out. Jesus is he's this figure who's fully alive, full of life. He's, he's fully present to the glory of God. And this man fully alive gives his life in humble obedience for the sake of others. We looked at that theme last week. What I want to see us to see this morning is that as we turn to verses 9 through 11, the second part of this little passage, it's structured around two responses. God's response to Jesus' work and humanity's response to Jesus' work. How does God respond? Here's the first point this morning. God highly exalted Jesus. God highly exalted Jesus. Exalted is already an intense word. It means to elevate, to lift up, to glorify. And Paul coins a term by adding the prefix hyper. So highly exalted, it's literally hyper-exalted. He super-glorified Jesus. But you see the change of subjects here. Jesus empties himself. Jesus humbles himself. God exalts him. Jesus is obedient. God bestows on him a name above every name. It's like the twist ending to a book or movie that you don't see coming. I suppose uh, maybe it's a little dated for kids, but those M. Night Shyamalan movies, when you don't see what's coming at the end of them, uh, that kind of a twist. At the very point of death, when it looks like everything is lost, the glory of God shines through. Resurrection, ascension, enthronement, it's all part of being hyper-exalted. But this sort of twist ending, this surprising reversal of fortunes, this putting down of the proud and exalting of the humble is a theme that runs right through the Bible. Once you start looking for it, it's unmissable. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, prays at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. We find these surprising reversals throughout the Psalms. Psalm 147, for example, the Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. It's a major theme in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 57, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, the one who is exalted, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy places and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is highly exalted, but who does he dwell with? Those who are humble. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but Mary really is a profound biblical theologian. 
Mary, the mother of Jesus. She picks up this theme in that great song she sings in Luke 2 that we call the Magnificat. He has looked down on the humble estate of his servant. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And then this pattern is prominent in Jesus' own teaching. And I wonder, did he learn it from Mary? Uh, As he grew in wisdom, did Mary teach him this theme? What does Jesus say? The last will be first, and the first shall be last. If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It sounds upside down, counterintuitive. But that's because we live in a world where humility from others being upside sounds like a way to for number one, who will, right? And that's the way we navigate. In Jesus' case, it does lead to death. But that's not the end. God highly exalted Jesus. It's important to see this isn't like a chess gambit. Jesus doesn't sacrifice momentarily by humbling himself so that in the end he can exalt himself. Jesus is simply humble, obedient, other-centered because it's the right thing to do. And then God vindicates him. God exalts him. God bestows on him the name above every name. To understand what it means that God bestows this name on him, again, let's look briefly at the Old Testament. I'm leaving out a lot here. Uh, I had a lot more passages I deleted out even this morning. But, uh, but again, let's look briefly at the Old Testament. In Exodus, God meets Moses, and what does Moses say? If the people ask what your name is, what shall I tell them? He says, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent me to you, the Lord. Yahweh has sent me, or sent you to, the, to them. And then a little bit later, God says to Moses, he's going to perform signs in Egypt, what we call the ten plagues, to show my power so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. God tells Israel to listen to the angel of the Lord that will lead them through the wilderness because the Lord's name is in him. When Moses asked to seek God's glory, or see God's glory on Mount Sinai, God descends in a cloud to Moses, and the Lord's name is proclaimed. In Numbers, God teaches the, priests, the, uh, 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 the priestly blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, and, and, and so forth. So the, and so shall the priest put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. In Deuteronomy, God says he's going to choose a place where the tabernacle and temple should be, And that will be the place where his name will dwell. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, if Israel obeys God and is faithful to God, all people will see that Israel is called by God's name. Solomon builds his temple and he says, this is the place where God's name is. If you pray towards it, if you pray in it, God will hear in heaven and answer. So what we see through the Old Testament is God puts his name on his people, that they might be a public witness in the midst of the nations, both by the nature of their corporate life, living humbly and in obedience, and by their corporate worship and prayer in the temple. And now as Jesus is exalted, God puts his name once again on Jesus. Like Israel, Jesus is, to, is, is the public witness of God's will, like the temple Jesus is the place that bears God's name. Jesus is where we come to encounter God. By bestowing this name on Jesus, God makes known publicly 
within history what is eternally true. This passage begins, Jesus was in the very form of God, okay? It's not like he gained something more than he had to start with. What else could there be than to be God himself? But bestowing the name on him means that it's publicly proclaimed in the midst of history. Romans uh, 1.4, Paul makes the same point. Jesus Christ, our Lord, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Okay? It's not that he became the Son of God at his resurrection, but rather it's declared. Like I said, in a sense, this is not really even a passage about us. God creates humans in his image. Our rebellion bends us out of shape so we don't reflect his glory as we ought to. Jesus loves the Father and so assumes a human form of human nature in order to straighten it out through perfect obedience and humility. And in response to Jesus' self-sacrificial restoration of all creation, God highly exalts him. That's God's response. But how do humans respond? How should we respond? Well, confess now or later. Confess now or later. As a result of God's highly exalting Jesus and bestowing on him the name above every name, eventually, Paul says, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Wherever a person could be. If they're died in or in heaven, if they're living on earth, if they're buried in the ground, wherever they are. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The point is that we can either joyfully make confession now by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord, or we will begrudgingly make confession at the end when we see that it is indeed the case that Jesus is Lord when our rebellion is finally defeated. Now we can think of this as sort of a cosmic shell game. It's not the right way to think about it, but I think sometimes it's our default setting. You know a shell game, a marble is placed under some, a cup and then you move the cups around and you have to guess which cup it's under. If you think of Jesus' lordship and divinity as hidden under a cup and it's like you've got to place your bet before the cup is lifted up and the truth is revealed, uh, that seems a bit unfair. But that's not Paul's picture here. Paul's not saying you've got to place your bet before the truth is revealed. Rather, he says Jesus' whole mission is about straightening out humanity so that we can glorify God and enjoy him forever. But if we refuse to be straightened out, if we refuse to glorify God by confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, if we refuse to enjoy him, then we resist the restoration of our very nature that begins with Jesus' work. We can either be renewed, which begins by acknowledging Jesus as Lord, or there will be no place for us in God's final renewed kingdom. We can't have it both ways. Either we need to be made fit to belong in the kingdom, or we won't belong in the kingdom. There will be universal confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it will also mark an eternal parting of the ways. And so either we make an etern a, a joyful confession now, or in our final defeat, we will be forced to admit that Jesus is Lord, although we oppose him. This does raise questions like, uh, what about people who worship God insofar as they can but have never heard about Jesus? The Bible really only gives us some general guidelines for thinking through these sorts of questions. What the Bible does tell us, and that we can rest assured in, is that God will judge according to how much of his will each person knew, and that God's final judgment will be perfectly just. 
although we might not fully understand it, when God judges all things, we will all say, yes, this is as it should be. Yes, this is right. But Paul's point here is to encourage Christians who confess Jesus as Lord. One day this confession will be publicly vindicated. One day, no matter what it costs you now, it will end in final victory. And also to urge everyone to confess Jesus as Lord now. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul encourages Timothy, take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What does it look like to make a good confession? To confess that Jesus is Lord. The word confess uh, is used in some context to almost mean uh, like a promise and in other contexts to mean praise. And we should probably have both of those sort of in the background here in Philippians 2. Confessing Jesus as Lord is a bit like promising ourselves to him, and it's a bit like praising him. And in the New Testament, uh, if you look at all the times it's talked about confessing Jesus as Lord, we see that the good confession is accompanied by two things. In Romans 10, Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So external confession that Jesus is Lord must be matched by internal belief. And then in Titus 1, uh, Paul warns about those who confess to know God, but deny him by their works. He says they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for good works. Uh, not a very good resume. But Paul's point there is that public confession... To believe in God must be matched by a commitment to live an appropriate life. So these three go together. Confession, that Jesus is Lord, acknowledging that. It must be paired with internal belief and a commitment to live accordingly. What is the basic confession? Paul tells us here in verse 11. The basic Christian confession is simply this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That confession cuts two ways. On the one hand, the Greek Old Testament, like our pew Bibles, translates God's covenant name, which was revealed to Moses at the burning bush and put on Israel, as Lord. So to confess Jesus Christ is Lord against this backdrop means to confess that the covenant God of Israel, the God who met Moses at the burning bush, who brought Israel out of Egypt, who put his name on Israel, has now come in Jesus the Messiah. You see, there's a parallel between God bestowing this name on Jesus and us confessing or acknowledging that to be the case, that Jesus is the Lord, the God of Israel. On the other hand, if you confess that Jesus is Lord, it means accepting him as Lord. It's like swearing fealty to Jesus, uh, uh, you know, like knights used to do, to adopt a Lord that they would serve. And that means not trying to be your own Lord. My dad used to ask us as kids when we were getting uppity, who died and made you sheriff? I don't know, maybe your parents said something like that. But in a sense, we all need this kind of ego check. Jesus Christ is Lord. There's a true Lord of all things, and it's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus Christ. To confess that he is Lord means not putting ourselves as number one. But confessing Jesus as Lord also means not looking to someone else, a political figure or an empire or a lover or a boss as our Lord. 
Okay, parents, governors, bosses do have a degree of authority over us, but they're not lords in the same sense that Jesus is. This brings us then to the third truth I want to look at this morning. Citizens live like their Lord. Citizens live like their Lord. You might recall that this larger section of the book of Philippians uh, began in 127 with the statement, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, or literally, only live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Throughout this letter, Paul is reminding the Philippians that they are ultimately not citizens of Philippi, or Rome, or America, or Canada, but they are citizens of God's own kingdom. And as such, they should live in a worthy manner, characterized by unity, common work for the gospel, steadfastness in the face of suffering, and humility. And so Paul tells the story of Christ here as a pattern, as a paradigm, for the sort of mindset that the the Philippians should be cultivating, the mindset of humility. So citizens live like their Lord. He lived a humble life, and so must we if we want to follow our Lord. He was obedient, and so we must be obedient. Jesus warns his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus tells the disciples, the the walk of life that you have following me will be the same walk that I walk. This is true individually and corporately. Both as individuals and together as a group, we must live in a way that uh, is patterned on our Lord's way of life. Citizens must live like their Lord. Individually acknowledging Jesus as our Lord means we're committed to following his pattern of humility. We too, like Jesus, must take whatever is most valuable and desired, our abilities, our resources, and use them to serve others. We too must take the form of a servant. It means not insisting on our own way all the time. It means loving others even when they're annoying. Okay? Christmas break is coming up, kids. You're going to have two weeks to practice this. Uh, It means not always getting to pick the cartoon show. It means not uh, beating your brothers up because they're being annoying. It means loving them, right? Uh, Serving others, okay? Even like really horrible things like doing the dishes when it's not your night, that kind of thing. Like That's what it looks like. Uh, Spouses, adults, yeah, this also applies to us, doesn't it? Of serving others. But corporately, as a church, our life must, we must live like our Lord. If the church wants to change the world, well, that's probably the wrong question even to ask because it's Jesus who changes the world, it's God who does. But if, if the church wants to participate in that work, it's not about influence and power, but about humble obedience and counting others more significant and faithfully worshiping God. As Christians, sometimes we can mistakenly think that because of Jesus' victory, we should reign triumphant now. And so Christians talk about wanting to have a Christian nation again and, and, and uh, take power again and have influence and all those sorts of things. Uh, if, if a country does become predominantly Christian, then you have to wrestle with those of how do you govern well as Christians and all those sorts of things. But that's simply not the moment that we're living in now. The moment we live in now is much more like Jesus' own where being faithful means marginalized, humble obedience. And yet, what do we see? We see at the end, eventually, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what is the church called to here and now? To humble, faithful, patient obedience, to worship. We shouldn't seek empty glory, but rather we should empty ourselves to the glory of God, like Christ our Lord. And then coming back to this theme of the name and of Christ's victory, baptism marks Christians with God's own name. What are you baptized? Into, into the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has bestowed the name Lord on Jesus Christ, and then Christians are marked with that name. It's like we belong to him. I remember in Toy Story that the boy writes his name on the bottom of the toy's feet. It's a bit like that. That's what baptism is. You're marked as belonging to Christ Jesus. Well, in the ancient world, the word gospel generally referred to declaring good news, good news about a victory. So you might recall from the very beginning of the series that Philippi became a Roman colony after the Caesars uh, had won major victories on the battlefield there. And after those victories, messengers would have come to the city of Philippi and said, good news, good news, whoever, I can't remember who it was, I think Julius Caesar won or something, Mark Antony got defeated, I can't remember, but uh, anyways, good news, the good guy has won, uh, and you know he's the good guy because he won, so it's good news, right? That kind of declaration of victory. Well, in a sense, that's what Christians are meant to do. We bear witness to Christ Jesus, uh, not because it's in our power to convince people to believe what we believe or to force people to think like we think, but because we know about a great victory, and so we worship our Lord and honor him by telling others about his great victory. So we're saying, good news, a battle has been won. You can think whatever you want about it, but my act of worship is declaring this good news. And so that's why we've slowed down on this passage in a sense, to say, what do we need to say in order to faithfully proclaim this good news? Well, we need to say something about who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, why Jesus came to give himself vicariously as a substitute and an example to reconcile us to God, and what it means for us. It means we need to confess Jesus Christ is Lord and live according to his pattern. If you can say those three things, his identity, his mission, his call, you've laid out the good news. You've faithfully proclaimed it. It's an act of worship. You've done your part faithfully, humbly. From there, it's God's spirit that does any work that happens beyond that. So we live like our Lord, bearing his name in the midst of our community, living humbly as he lives, giving ourselves for others. Of course, none of that means it's easy. It's hard work. And so let us conclude with prayer. Lord, we know ourselves, if we are Christians, to be like big remodel projects. Some parts uh, of our lives have been restructured as they ought to be. They're getting straightened out. But we know other parts of our lives are still a mess. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would be at work within us. Lord, we are naturally so prideful. We tend to put ourselves first. It's so hard for us to be other-centered to consider others more significant, to seek first your kingdom, to glorify you and enjoy you. And yet, Lord, this is where we find true happiness. So by your Holy Spirit, be at work within us. Others, Lord, might be challenged this morning. Perhaps they've grown up in church. Perhaps they've never heard this message before. And yet, uh, they're hearing this challenge to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I ask by your Spirit, you would be at work within them now. 
Here is a Lord that we can truly submit to because he's a Lord who gave himself for us. He's not here to exploit us or take advantage of us, but he is here to give himself for us. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would be giving us faith and belief that we would give ourselves to Christ. May we in our corporate life, Lord, we see our world going directions it ought not. We see our country going directions it ought not, and we can feel discouraged. And yet let us in our corporate life remember what we are called to is humility, obedience, and worship. And let us be faithful in those things. Let us declare the good news of Christ's great victory as an act of worship. Let it be imprinted on our lives that people would see that we live the way our Lord lives. We offer all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our great Lord, fully God, who became human, who took the form of a servant and humbled himself for us. You have highly exalted him, and so we ask that we too would glorify him and highly exalt him through our words and actions and deeds. Amen.